tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult-Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cultworthy Classic, episode number 23. Joining me today on the show is my friend Justin of the Just in Time podcast and the Movie Wire podcast. We are going to deep dive into Mel Brooks' classic, The Producers, starring Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. This zany comedy broke the rules of what you could get away with with irreverent comedies in the theaters of the 1960s and 70s, setting the stage for such films as Blazing Saddles, History of the World, and pretty much any R-rated zany comedy that came after. Now, before we get into the show, I just got to clear up a few more things. Thank you for being patient with the transition of the Cultworthy podcast to a brand new platform host. All episodes are available, although on some players, they appear to be out of order. It was just one of the side effects of moving to a new podcast host, but it was definitely worth it. I'm very happy with the new home. Now, one of the things that you can help me do to get my show back on track on the new platform is go back and like and subscribe to the Cultworthy Podcast and the Cultworthy Classic because it kind of reset all the analytics. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for listening Without further ado, let's jump into The Producers with my friend Justin. Enjoy the show. And I'm here tonight with a very special guest, a long overdue guest that really got me sticking with this game because when I first started off, I didn't know what I was doing. Lucky enough, a bunch of us podcasters found each other and we have this little coalition of podcasters that support each other. This guy is the other movie guy in this group, and I cannot believe that I'm on episode 52 of the Cultworthy Podcast, episode 23 of the Cultworthy Classic, and I have not yet spoken to him. Everyone, my friend Justin of the Movie Wire Podcast and the Justin Time Podcast. Justin, how you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. It, like you said, it's well overdue. Well so. overdue. And you know what? Here's the other thing, too, is like I listen to your Movie Wire show and you and I, I would say, have the golden honey voices of the movie podcast. <laughs> like I, I almost feel like I'm being soothed by your mellow voice when you're talking about all these new films like Jurassic Park Dominion and the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie, which you had your daughter on. That one was fun, too. She's uh, becoming more and more active in the podcast space, so to the point where she wants to have her own podcast, So, which is really cool. And uh, you know what? She gets a kick out of it, and I get a kick out of uh, enlightening her to some of the movies and getting a different aspect of what to look for when you actually view a movie. So jumping right into that, you know, like me being the movie podcast guy about like obscure cinema, cult films, and with this show, The Cultworthy Classic, films that need to be recognized by the newer generations of how important they are and how influential they are to the films that are being made today. What was your motivation to get into film podcasting, man? When I was a kid, I you probably, as a film buff, know uh, the great and late Siskel and Ebert. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, my, my family is a huge sports family, and me, not so much. Me, I spent my days uh, watching uh, Siskel and Ebert once a week, reading up on the reviews. And it wasn't up until my youngest uh, son was born that I had a lot of free time on my hands. And my buddy on my first show, uh, the Justin Time Show, we decided to do a podcast and it's something I absolutely just fell in love with. And it kind of evolved where I wanted to do something I was very passionate about and that's film. Film has been part of my life ever since I was a kid, uh, sneaking out at night, not to go party, but to sneak into a local cinema <laughs> and watch 
uh, whatever movie I can. And I think my uh, dad helped me with that because I remember it was the Fox and the Hound that came out and playing next to that was Good Morning Vietnam. Right. And I, <laughs> Great film. And I remember my dad uh, walking to the theater and he's like, how about I take you for ice cream if we go see Good Morning Vietnam? And I think I must have been like seven or eight. And I took him up on it. And I think that sprouted it because I remember that experience being so vivid. And I ended up as a seven-year-old loving that film. And that's just, and I think you might have covered it on one of your shows. Um, I can't remember which, but you have those experiences when you're a kid that just, it's an experience and it stays with you. And it makes you fall in love with what you're experiencing, such as film. And it just kind of grows from that. And it just stuck with me. So that's what sprouted this podcast. It's something I've always wanted to do when it comes to film criticism. And it's just podcasting is great because it's given a lot of people the opportunity. Oh, yeah, 100%. Now, here's a question. Are you an only child? Uh, I have. I'm the youngest child. You're the youngest child. Okay. And, you know, like I said, I had a very similar situation with you. Like my dad used to do these weird double features with me. Like we went and saw Flight of the Navigator and Aliens on the same day. And like the great Mouse Detective and Rambo too. Like these are our memories that stick with me. So that's cool that you kind of have like that same kind of background in the sense of like, if you didn't have a dad who took that chance of like, well, let's see if this kid's going to dig a real film. You know, I'm not saying that The Fox and the Hound mm -hmm. isn't a real film, but sure. I, I really think that like that early that early introduction and influence of, of good cinema and good performances really can direct someone in that way. It definitely happened with me. Did you ever dabble in film production or writing or anything like that? Uh, when I was younger, especially in middle school and high school, I used to write my own, just in a journal of the movies that I saw. And I took a lot of uh, classes when it comes to film production and film literature mm -hmm. in high school and early college. And it's, it's just something why I don't know why I'm so passionate about it, but I never pursued it, but it just, I don't know what it is, but it's just something that just stayed with me when it, um, it's just something that I just love doing. And I think you of all people know the nitty grittiness of creating a podcast, watching the movie, writing about the movie. Um, it's a, it's a grueling process. And if you don't have a love for it, then it just becomes that much more difficult. Yeah, and you are like me in the sense of when I'm doing one of my solo shows, it is completely written. It's scripted. Like I'm writing the reviews, mm -hmm. I'm going through them, I have everything kind of mapped out as opposed to an episode like this where we're just having a conversation about a film. I, I mean, I, I feel that I'm comfortable in conversation, but when it comes to just me and the microphone talking about movies, I don't want to be the guy that just sounds like he's rambling on. I want to get the message out there as clearly as well spoken as you know my vocabulary can handle but also i want it to be engaging where especially if i'm talking about a film that not a lot of people have seen or in your case films that most people haven't seen yet that just came out i think that's where like the the skill and the drive to be the best you can be in that medium really comes through and and i appreciate your show for that because it does not sound like a guy who just came home from the theater turned on the mic and just said well Uncharted was okay, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Like you, you have a, a message and you actually have well thought critiques and they're not just tearing it apart. You are commenting the things that you like, the things that have worked. And when, especially with that Uncharted episode, things that you as a fan of the performers and a fan of the material would have liked to have seen in a film mm -hmm. adaptation. I think that's really important too. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, you know, I recently uh, uh, watched Elvis uh, over the weekend. And it's one of those movies that I had to watch. I got right back in line after watching it the first time. And I'm not going to give anything away, but it's not necessarily because of it's, a, it's a good film, but it's because I want to fully understand the content of what they're going after. Um, the first viewing, I, it was hard for me to understand what they were trying to accomplish. But after the second viewing, I knew what I was looking for. And it's one of those I might see before an episode. And sometimes I release my episode a day or two late. But I want to make sure that I know and fully understand what the filmmakers are trying to do. And 
there was, I think Uncharted, I saw three times <laughs> and, and I absolutely hated watching it three times. Um, but it's one of those that if you're, if you want to make sure you have a clear message, you want to make sure the listeners have a clear message of what your thought process is. And I, I go after quality and I appreciate you pointing that out. And that's what makes your show very special to me as well is, um, I think we were talking before the show, um, you are, your show is very unique and you go over stories that people aren't familiar with and you have the tone that encourage not only listeners, but even people listening to take their kids to, um, to kind of dissect the movies. And I, that's what I really appreciate. And you have all those podcasters out there that go after what's trending and there's nothing wrong with that, but it takes a unique voice to just point out some unique stories and encourage people to check them out. And you do a fantastic job with that. And that's what I really appreciate about your show. Thanks, man. Oh my gosh. Like, I feel like we're about to like make out in the back of the car or something. It's really great, <laughs> but proposal after the show. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. No, I've never been complimented so much. Uh, I think by anyone about the show. So honestly, I can't thank you enough for that. It makes me oh, of course, want to do more seasons now. <laughs> Good. You should. Absolutely. So here's the thing. We are doing an episode on the, the cult worthy classic about a film that means a lot to me. I have no idea how much it means to you. But there was no getting away from growing up in my house without a Mel Brooks movie or a record or an eight track at some point in the household. Like I remember driving to school with my dad. He had like a 65 Chevy that he put an eight track player in and we would listen to the soundtrack to High Anxiety and the soundtrack to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. So here I am at five or six years old, knowing all of the lyrics to these songs from these Mel Brooks films and being encouraged not to sing them at school. So there was always a little bit of Mel Brooks in my life. I saw Blazing Saddles probably at age five. If anything, that's a film that taught me about racism and the N-word. And luckily for me, I had parents that taught me about satire and also just the idea that like, this is funny because it's taking place in the old West, but it is pointing out political and ideological tropes that were very current then and are very current now. And if there's one thing I can say about Mel Brooks was he had an unadulterated sense of humor that got the message out and he was unapologetic about it. Absolutely. And you see that with a lot of his films. Um, and I know we're going to get into the producers in a second, but I, I'm glad you brought up Blazing Saddles because he does a fantastic job when it comes to um, comedic timing and having a message and introducing something that could be uncomfortable and should be uncomfortable to some extent. Um, but the way he does it, there is not I can't think of a lot of filmmakers that have the magic that Mel Brooks does when it comes to the subject matter that he covers in his films, especially of course in his earlier films. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on and it's definitely one of those that you have to blazing saddles. I think we watch maybe once every few months just to, just to watch. It's an absolute classic. And it's like a master class in comedic timing not in just like from the filmmaker's aspect, from the performances, from the line delivery, from the sight gags. Like it is comedy 101. It's like the mother sauce that you're teaching a French cook how to make. Like that is how everything needs to work. Now you just insert your story, your characters, and so on. So 100%. And it's one of those weird things where it's like, you know, when I was growing up, that film was not considered a cult classic. It was just a classic. And then I mm -hmm. think in like the last decade or more where, you know, problematic themes arise and people start thinking differently about things they once loved or question their loyalty to a filmmaker because of their past mistakes. You know, I try to look around that and just look at the film and the package as what it is and what it meant either to society at the time and what it means now. And it needs to be discussed. And it's one of those things where it's like, do I talk about that film on my podcast or do I just let society and the world rediscover it and re 
you know, analyze it for what it is, you know, and, and not have to get either the hate or the complaints about covering such a, a hot topic. And I, I'm still on the fence about it, you know? Yeah. And you cover a good point. Cause I recently talked about, you know, film censorship and what we find okay now versus back then. And there's definitely, I'm grateful for a lot of the, the film, uh, industry hasn't had a hard hit like some of the video game industry books is a hot topic right now obviously and it's film needs to be protected in that aspect when it comes to there are topics out there and the creators that make that film it's a message and it needs to be protected but it's i guess what i'm trying to say in the aspect of that film is it might not be a cult, it's a cult classic, but it's a classic at the time. But the way Mel Brooks portrayed it is an absolute gem, but it opens up a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Now it is considered a, ty- a a comedy, but comedies are can open up dialogues for families, friends, and all that. And that's why it's such an important movie, not just because of the comedy aspect of it, because it's the start of an open dialogue that you can have mm-hmm. after the film. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the most important and why I love to protect the censorship of film because film is there to open up dialogue and it is a brilliant, easy way to do that. And it's one of those, it's light, it's lighthearted for a lot of his films. And it just really, a Mel Brooks classic film is just a lot of stuff that you can have one-liners and joke about, especially in Blazing Saddles. I mean, you can pretty much just bout off the script and have a ton of one-liners on it. Yeah. And one of the things that I mentioned in an earlier episode um, of the Cultworthy Classic, I think it was the Duck Soup episode, and why I think Blazing Saddles works so well and Mel Brooks should be applauded, is because it was one of the first examples where we saw anybody and anything can and should be the butt of a joke. What makes that movie work is that it only works because everybody, every race, every creed, every ability every animal is the butt of the joke it absolutely it doesn't pick and choose what it thinks needs to be funny it it brings everything down with it it sinks the ship of the world and that's why everyone should be able to laugh at it and that's that's one of the things that i really think that film is a rarity for because it had the balls to do that (laughs) and you see a lot of content now that you don't have the same intent as you did back then the intent now is to see if it trends, to say what you can, to see who has the most likes, like the most views. Mel Brooks went to make a movie yep. and he made a, a film that he had a vision. He had a comedic vision for, and he had a message to give as well. And you're absolutely right on that. And I, well, this, this was supposed to be the producer's episode, but we've gone on for 10 <laughs> minutes about Blazing Saddles. That might have to be a yeah. follow-up eventually, yeah, but the, the producers. Man. Away. From the endlessly funny mind of Mel Brooks. Bring time for Hitler. A gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Berchtesgarten. Wow. Comes wow. the Oscar-winning cult classic, The Producers. Step one, we find the worst play in the world, a surefire flop. Step two. I raise a million bucks. A lot of little old ladies in the world. Starring Zero Mostel. <laughs> and Gene Wilder. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You make me extremely nervous. In one of the funniest movies ever made. <laughs> you fat fatty, give me those fat bucks now! The receptionist that can't speak English. What will people say? They'll say, I see it! A line of beautiful girls dressed as stormtroopers. Don't be stupid. Be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. Available. For the- what was your first exposure to this Mel Brooks classic? I remember I was in high school, and there's a place up here in Seattle called uh, uh, Scarecrow Video. Mm-hmm. And I, me and my buddies used to go and just rent the most obscure films. And it's usually comedy. I mean, that's what we asked for. And one of the employees introduced us to the producers and asked if you're a fan of Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles, of course, was a personal favorite back then. So he introduced us to the producers and viewing it for the first time, I believe it was VHS. I can't remember laughing so hard. And (laughs) it's, 
you had me sold from Mel Brooks. You had me sold from Gene Wilder. But this movie has a unique plot, and it's a simplistic plot, but it opens up a lot of chaotic situations. And with me, I love my comedies where you have those incidents of chaos. You yeah. have those incidents of just fun chaos, right? Everything to love about this movie when it comes to it, and especially with comedic timing. I think I wore out the, I ended up buying a VHS copy of it, and I think I wore it out within the first year. <laughs> See, for me, going back to, you know, listening to Mel Brooks albums on the way to school, he had the producer's soundtrack. He actually made a mixtape of all the different uh, soundtracks that he had. So the High Anxiety songs were on there. The Putting on the Ritz from Young Frankenstein was on there. And then there were the songs from this. So, you know, at five or six years old, driving to school, singing Springtime for Hitler in the car, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, well, okay, Dad, I've seen Young Frankenstein and I've seen History of the World. I've seen most of these these movies or these songs come from. Where does Springtime for Hitler come from? And he's like, oh, that's from the producers. We don't own it, but let's see if we can find it. And same, we went to a video store. We rented it. I've got to be like seven or eight at the time. And it hands down became one of my favorite movies of my youth. Maybe it's sometimes even more than Blazing Saddles because this one, you've got your two leads who are essentially live action cartoons. They really play up their roles. They are magnetic. They work off each other so well. Probably the best like comedic chemistry I've seen in a film ever. You know, you got Abbott and Costello, you got Laurel and Hardy, you've got Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder in this film and in The Rhinoceros. They're pretty funny in that too. But this especially, just bringing it home. Yeah, and I think part of the interest in the uh, comedic team that they have is that Gene Wilder and Zero are complete opposites. Yeah. And not only in appearance, but comedy style as well. You have Gene Wilder that is a little bit more subtle and he always has what I appreciate about Gene Wilder is that one stare that he has going into a camera in a lot of his films mm -hmm. that looks like he's just looking at the mystical unicorn in the camera. <laughs> and, then you, and it adds an innocence to the, to all of his characters that he plays, especially in the producers where he is an innocent accountant. And then you have a zero that just looks the part. He is a sleazy producer. And I think just the pure opposite piques a lot of the interest of uh, watching to see what these two do. I mean, there's something almost like inhuman about Zero Mostel in this film. Like, even his hairstyle doesn't make any sense. Like, it's a comb over from <laughs> the back and to the side. And then, you know, his cardboard belt. Like, there's just something about him that, like... Okay, he he's uh, he speaks English. He's a human, but is he really? You know, are you sure he's not some kind of cave troll that somehow got a break in Hollywood? Gene Wilder and his neuroses, especially in this film, like, is there a more neurotic character than Leo Bloom in any movie? Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> especially with his little blue blankie. His little blue blankie, <laughs> which is classic. My my blue blankie. The cardboard belt uh, line. I've used that more than I think I should. <laughs> Uh, whenever my daughter asks for money, I, I, I think I spout that line is, you want money? I'm wearing a cardboard belt. Look at me. I'm yeah. wearing a cardboard belt. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely the one-liners in that. And question for you. So when you were listening to the soundtrack, did you ever question in the car why you're listening to a song called Springtime for Hitler? Oh, no. No, my, <laughs> my parents raised me on practically everything. So... You know, one of the first movies I ever saw in the theater was Amadeus. Uh, mm, I remember seeing Rambo too in the theater. Like, I, I wasn't censored from things because they really taught me early about the suspension of disbelief. And hey, it's a movie. It's not real. No one's dying. All these different things like that. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I knew who Hitler was. I did not know the heaviness of the Holocaust and that whole thing. But... Here is what was funny is that even though the song is irreverent and a bit ridiculous, I knew that it was satirical and because it's played for laughs, the German accents are used very comically. The lyrics are hilarious. There's a lot of Busby Berkeley going on in that production number. It's, it's making something that should make you feel very uncomfortable, palatable because they are really just beating the hell out of it. And rightfully so. 
but the fact that you know here is you know Mel Brooks, a very Jewish man, you know, like I grew up listening to him and Carl Reiner with the two thousand year old man. So I, mm. I I knew the relevance of like Yiddish humor and stuff like that, and knowing that he was doing this comedic musical based on Nazis, we'll get to the plot in a minute. No, mm. like it it didn't yeah. strike me weird at all, other than the fact my dad said, "Don't sing this at school." <laughs> <laughs> Well, and the funny thing is, Mel Brooks, when he first started uh, trying to push this film, the original title was Springtime for Hitler. Yes. <laughs> and, and I don't know who he thought was gonna, he was going to sell this movie to. I can't imagine anybody wanting to play this. And the, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall to see the reaction when he presented a film called Springtime for Hitler. And I'm pretty sure we'd get the same reaction that we did at the when they showed the actual musical in the movie where you, they pan out in the audience and you have those reactions. So, <laughs> I mean, I just think it's a, a very, the history of it is a very comedic experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And because he was a writer first, you know, I mean, Mel Brooks started so young writing for radio shows and for TV shows, essentially sneaking on to these radio sets as a delivery boy to get writing jobs, him and Carl Reiner, like he already knew what to do with the words. He already knew what to do with the structure, which in my opinion, that's the hardest part is, Absolutely. you know, and, and I feel that writers get so little credit unless they win an award. And also by the time like the film hits the screen, most of their words have been bastardized. Most of their story structure has been, diminished that's why i do have a lot of respect for writer directors who know what happens to to pieces that get put in the hands of studios so to a be able to sell this project and then him to sell it as the director man come on <laughs> yeah and because yeah mel brooks wrote and directed it but the interesting thing to me as well is he made most of the music for it too but he did he didn't read music he had a professional do that obviously mm -hmm. but I found it very interesting that he would, he had a vision of the music that wanted to be in this movie and he would just hum it and then put his vision to a composition. And that just adds to the magic of the movie, in my opinion. I mean, the music in it is fantastic. The, even the score that you just hear towards the end of springtime for Hitler as the orchestra plays, everything about the music in this film um, just works and just adds to that feeling of the theme of the film. And the fact that you actually hear Mel Brooks's voice all throughout the all throughout the movie <laughs> in song after song, and that's a trope that would be carried on in many films that had musical numbers of his, which were most of his films had a musical number at some point. He just loved music, and he loved musicals, and he loved Busby Berkeley. And even in mm -hmm. his films that weren't really considered musicals, he always tried to find a way to put some kind of set piece like that in there. You know, he did it in Blading Saddles. He kind of did it in Young Frankenstein with putting on the Ritz. It's it's just something that he loves. And that's I guess that's another thing, too. And I remember watching that in the documentary that was on HBO a few years ago about him is that he loved filmmaking. He loved his projects. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a job. It wasn't just an ego trip. It was like the only thing he really, really loved to do. Yeah, absolutely. And when the producers came onto Broadway, it was... Again, a smash hit, and I was lucky enough to go to New York and see the Matthew Broderick, uh, Nathan Lane mm -hmm. version of it. And the music in that is just as you would expect from a Mel Brooks uh, project. Yeah, Every song is hilarious and spot on, and you will be singing it in your head for the rest of the week. And that's one of the most brilliant things about it. Now let's talk about the plot because, you know, let's yeah. not forget that this script was also nominated for an Academy Award because it's a good script. It's not just about the yeah. good dialogue, the plot and the story structure is brilliant as well. You know, you've got down on his luck, 
producer, Max Bielenstock, who has, you know, one time, I guess, been like the toast of the town as a Broadway producer and now is in this state of having to have sexual encounters with elderly women for <laughs> rent checks, thinking that they're producing a show that's not getting made. And then you've got Leo Bloom as, you know, the accountant that is supposed to be, you know, looking at his books, seeing what losses and gains were made. They're all losses. But that's when they come up with the brilliant idea that properly insured a failure of a show could actually be profitable collecting the insurance money in which they put this scheme together where they're going to find the absolute worst production that they can put on, oversell it, and collect the returns. Sounds pretty yep. brilliant to me, if done right. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's a brilliant plot. And one of the other lines is, there's a lot of little old ladies out there. And it's one of my favorite lines of the movie. And yeah, it's a basic plot, but it's a unique plot at the same time. And when they go through the motions of raising the money, finding the worst director, uh, finding the worst script, it, it you almost can see where it's going to go mm -hmm. that you try and do put all the bad pieces together and it crescendos into something that you know is going to be a chaotic moment in film. And they take you on a ride that is just, it feels sectional, but at the same time, it feels very fluent. And that's what I loved about the theme of it. And my favorite piece of it was uh, debris when yeah. they go to the director that is one of my favorite moments, uh, especially because I used to watch Mr. Mr. Uh, Belvedere. <laughs> and seeing him in drag was awesome. And he plays that part well. And he gives those big eyes when he lights up the screen that he does in the show as well. And, and there's a lot of good cameos that you see in TV in this film. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, and then let's go to the cast now, because here you got a great story. You've got a lot of great beats, a lot of great moments. We'll get into some of those in a little bit, but let's talk about the brilliance of the cast because this film, just like most Mel Brooks films, is perfectly cast. You've got mm -hmm. characters who almost built careers playing these same characters for years. You know, yep. Mostel obviously is Mostel in any film. This is just, I think, a higher octane of Mostel. Mm -hmm. Gene Wilder in this film, I mean, he's always been so charming in other movies. Here he's playing a little bit chaotic. I'm not sure if you knew this, but he was the original Billy Bibbit on Broadway for um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That I did not know. It's the role that Brad Dorff eventually would play in the film. And when I watch him in his like neurotic states in this in this film, especially when he needs his blanket or you're gonna jump on me, you're gonna jump on me. Understand this is fate, this is destiny, this is kismet. There's no avoiding it. Mr. Bialik's talking not more than five minutes ago. I doctored your books. That, sir, is the ultimate extended by criminal life. Whoa! I want that money! Oh, I fell on my keys. I can almost see him channeling that character from the play. And it really mm -hmm. makes me wish I could have seen that performance or him at least, you know, I mean, he'd be, he would have been too old for the film version, but it, it makes me think, oh, wow, they got the right guy for that role. Just the way he plays Leo Bloom here. The Leo Bloom character just in general is he is so simplistic and innocent. And what I loved about his character, even with them going through the motions of everything that they're doing, at the end of the film, he's still, he doesn't change. Yeah. <laughs> he is still a very innocent, neurotic man with just a tad of confidence, but he doesn't go through any drastic changes. It makes the character super realistic. Let's get the real elephant in the room out, and that's Dick Sean as Lorenzo St. Dubois, a.k.a. LSD. <laughs> oh, so this... I think at this piece of the movie, the song when he performs on at his audition, <laughs> I think I had to rewind it probably about four or five times. It is an absolute crazy audition, but you can't. It's a train wreck. You can't look away because it is actually good, and just uh, zero at the end, just shouting off, "That's our Hitler." <laughs> you almost want to do it yourself. He 
is amazing, especially with the can of soup around his neck. The can of soup around his neck. He's got an all-girl backup band <laughs> that he calls the guys. <laughs> I'm talking about love power, the power of little flowers. You don't think about no little flowers. Oh no, all you think about is guns. If everybody in the world today had a flower instead of a gun, there would be no wars. There would be one big smell in. Just a flower. There is like a proto Robin Williams kind of mania to him, but it's sustained Mm -hmm. because he's, you know, kind of a hippie stoner kind of guy as well. When I heard that they were going to be doing the producers on Broadway, and this is before I had seen it. I didn't see it on Broadway. I actually saw it in Seattle. And then Mm -hmm. the film version of it, in my mind, I was like, oh, there's no way that they can't have Robin Williams play LSD only Mm -hmm. to find out that they cut that character completely from that production but that's always kind of what I imagined if they ever did like a remake or a, a revision of this film. Yeah. And I think I, I'm trying to remember, I, I believe it was Roger Bart that did the, uh, that kind of role in the Broadway show, mm-hmm. but it would be very, and I think you're right. Robin Williams would have been, is a good comparison, only tame towards yeah. the end of the audition. He, you can t- almost tell that that was a little bit improvised. Oh yeah. None of that would have been, written whatsoever especially at the end where he breaks off the banana eats it and then sucks on a thimble <laughs> and and i think it was pure genius when it comes down to it they put a lot of his character into multiple characters i think of the broadway production yeah and you can see that trickle into just the improvision of some of those auditions in the broadway show um but it is nearly impossible to replicate the magic that he had without going overboard and just overacting that uh, when it comes to being current. And then to follow it up with probably the most problematic character by today's standards, that being Kenneth Mars as Franz Liebkind, the <laughs> the Hitler sympathist playwright who has written this ode to Hitler and Ava. <laughs> oh my God, like that, that's the, the script they go with. But is there a funnier scene? I mean, it's hard for me to think of a funnier scene than them going to meet him in his building after talking to the concierge (laughs) and meeting him on the rooftop in a pigeon coop. I mean, what an introduction following the next scene where he's serving them tea and talking about (laughs) how Hitler was a great dancer. Not many people knew it. That the Fuhrer was a terrific dancer. Really, I never dreamed that... That is because that you were treating men by the Quartinta Allied propaganda. Such filthy lies, they told lies. But nobody ever said a bad word about Winston Churchill, did they? No, when was winning? <laughs> Churchill! Uh, Adolf Elizabeth Hitler. <laughs> it's one of those that and you spoke to it with a uh, blazing saddles it's one of those uncomfortable moments but the timing on it and just the ridiculousness of it uh just makes that even more i guess i want to say funny because he overacts that role a little bit um in my opinion oh yeah he um, does. <laughs> <laughs> but it's done so in brilliant comedy timing or comedic timing and right when they are come to the rooftop he just jumps up. I'm not part of the Nazi party. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is just genius. And yeah, but it's that subject matter that is super important in movies. And that's the scene that we talk about that just opens up that dialogue. And the reason I asked that question earlier, if um, when you played Springtime for Hitler, <laughs> um, d- did you ever question it? And this is part of the culture that we live in, that these are things that open up the conversation piece. And that's why these scenes are very important to have those dialogues. Should we really be laughing at this? Should we really be chuckling at this? I mean, let's see what the guy doing next to me. Well, right. And then at the same time to put icing on the cake of how uncomfortable that scene is supposed to be. Leo and Max walk out of the apartment with Nazi armbands on their jackets. And Leo's like, can I take this off now? 
<laughs> well, and imagine, because when I first watched it, I remember the feeling that I had when they put those on. I felt uncomfortable. Yes. And then it, it's this uncomfortable moment, but then the brilliance of Mel Brooks and the brilliance of the actors put it in there. And again, it's a conversation piece, but then they lighten the mood a little bit and hit us again with something else. It, but yeah, it's that uncomfortable piece where you don't know what you should be doing. And in a way... That makes it funny. It makes it funny because it's not supposed to be funny, and that's what makes it yeah. funny. And like you go into this Ouroboros of emotion where it's like, okay, I should not be laughing at this. I should be upset at this, but I can't <laughs> stop laughing at this because it's so upsetting. Like you go through that round of emotions. Again, that's a brilliantly written scene, directed scene, and performed scene because if you didn't have those actors doing exactly what they did, that could turn into a very disastrous moment in film. Yeah, and that's a very good point because there's not a lot, there, a lot of uh, co uh, comedians, I can't think of one in the 60s that would be able to pull it off um, as appropriately as Zero and Gene Wilder. Um, and again, Kenneth Mars. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think they did a fantastic job when it comes down to it. Um, but there... I know Dustin Hoffman was in the role um, for Leo Bloom at one point, and that would have been a completely or a completely different movie. Um, I don't think he has the comedic timing as the great Gene Wilder, mm -hmm. and I think that, like you said before, the casting is just spot on, just because of these moments um, that we see in the film where they attack with something that's completely out there, inappropriate, and opens up that dialogue, and then just pulls us back. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, then we get to like this great musical production. Okay. It's not great <laughs> it, for the audience, <laughs> for the audience in the film. It's not great as the viewer, knowing what the scam is, the, the performances of springtime for Hitler and then LSD coming on the stage as Hitler doing this baby, baby, baby. What is this baby? Is a Hitler never said baby, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> The audience is just about to die and leave when LSD comes on, does this hilarious portrayal of Hitler, which now the joke is on us because all this time we're feeling uncomfortable of like, are we really supposed to be laughing at this? Is this really something that's supposed to be funny? Obviously, the audience in the film doesn't like it. And then it just turns over on itself and makes it all okay because now, as society does, it starts laughing at it and becoming fans of it when the whole intention was to offend them and the plan backfires. Yeah. And I love it when they pan to the audience and you see their reactions. It's like the audience is going on a journey with us as well, because we go through the movie with the kind of the same reaction and the audience is seeing it for the first time and they're experiencing what we just had to for the first hour of the film. Yeah. And, and I love the uh, wide angle shots of just inviting the audience. And I think part of the uh, comedy of it is why I laugh so hard during this scene is just watching the reactions of the audience. There's nothing more funny than to see reactions of other people yeah. while you're watching a film. And yeah, and the production itself is absolutely ridiculous of springtime for Hitler. <laughs> the costumes themselves is absolutely ridiculous, but in a hilarious way. In a hilarious way. Another favorite moment of mine is when the boys think that they've won and they run to the bar across the street, not having seen that the audience has turned on them and now are liking the show. And mm -hmm. they start drinking with uh, William Hickey, one of my favorite character actors of all time, yeah. whose longevity in the film industry is just ridiculous. And then the, Lewis. <laughs> then the crowd comes in after the intermission and talking about how much they love the show and then you just see the tables turn. You can't get any better of a third act flip than that. Yeah, and it goes into that pulling you back because right before the audience comes in, you hear uh, Zero start singing The Silvery Moon. Mm -hmm. And it's that they invite the audience to have a safe zone where we feel like, all right, this is going to work out for them for, at some point. You kind of invite yourself into that bar with them. And then when the audience comes in and uh, they start talking about it, it could be any, there's a lot of shows on the, uh, the strip. 
then <laughs> it all starts to fall apart and crumble with the snap of a finger. And that's where we start to, we, me personally, I felt, even though they're doing something illegal, I felt for Gene Wilder and Zero. My heart dropped that they weren't going to get away with committing this felony. So here's the funny thing with me, and like, I'm not saying I've never committed a crime in my life. I've never been caught committing a crime in my life. I'm generally a really good person. But I've always been like, who'd they really hurt? Like, all these investors were just lonely old ladies who got some pleasure and some boy toy love from Zero Mostel <laughs> towards the end of their days. You know, really, what was the crime that much? I'm like, oh, well, they did commit fraud, but whatever. The part of this movie that really just kind of makes me, I'm not going to say tear up, but gets me even more emotionally invested at the end is that having these two oil and water characters at the beginning of the show that were so just like refractory of each other, just did not blend, did not mix, always questioning each other. There's a real camaraderie at the end where it's like, Mm -hmm. these are two lonely, broken people who obviously can't function in the world as themselves, but by some miracle, they've found each other in this crazy scheme. And now they have not only like this lifelong friendship, it seems, but they're going to do it again. <laughs> and this time, hopefully with a little bit more foresight. <laughs> yeah. You had the prisoners of love towards the end. Great and song. It was on that they, soundtrack that my dad used to play. <laughs> great song too. And they do it in a natural way. That's what is so special about this movie. There is nothing outlandish. Everything is realistic. And towards the end, you're, and they do something in the Broadway show where Leo actually points out exactly what um, you were talking about, which is that natural friendship. And it crescendos into something that just, it does make you feel good. You do feel this friendship um, develop. And what I, think is you see just as much character development from gene wilder than you do zero Mm -hmm. he almost becomes a little softer towards the end and that could be because he's caught committing a crime or he actually really feels for his friendship for uh leo yeah i agree with that so yeah um now let's talk about influences that we've seen in this film like i really don't think that we have to talk about the 2005 remake or the Broadway show. I mean, here's the thing. I'm a huge fan of Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. I never got to see them on Broadway. So my exposure to them was in the film production itself. And you just can't capture that lightning in a bottle of these two. You know, you'd have to turn it into something different, which is what they kind of did with that. But uh, the, the other things that I think that really make this movie immortal and and, and cult worthy to these days is we see all these like different kind of like irreverent films that took a page out of this book. I mean, Mel Brooks did it over and over again with young Frankenstein, blazing saddles, history of the world. And even when he started making tamer films in the nineties, like Robin hood and Dracula dead and loving it, it, it never lost that kind of that always ready to turn that card over of I'm going to offend you, but you're going to thank me for it kind of mentality. We've seen parody films try to do this. We've seen um, some irreverent films try to do this and never with as much magic. I think this movie set the tone for a lot of films in the future, especially in the uh, early 2000s, in all honesty, where you see a lot of films try to push the envelope and they don't do it in a correct way. And it usually falls flat. It's hard, like you said, to capture the lightning in a bottle of the characters and the simplistic of the plot and nowadays it's very hard to do that and we are seeing a little bit of restraint from production companies pulling movies back and being a little bit more tame um and i think back in 1967 there was a little bit more play with creation Mm -hmm. um and they gave a little bit more leeway to creators and it's a shame going into it that we don't see that magic anymore when it comes to that kind of filmmaking and it to actually push the limits to make a great film a lot of the great films out there have to push the limits and i think this is a prime example in just overall film study of that in a proper appropriate way yeah and also had like what is it the goldilocks theory of having like that perfect environment i mean this came out in that decade 
of, let's say, the early 60s, the early 70s, after the Hayes Code goes away, there's a lot more freedom in expression and film, whether it's like sexuality, uh, irreverent humor, interracial romance. Like, that's where you see a lot of these perfect films kind of come out and start changing the way people accept movies, was in this Goldilocks period of those 10 years. And that is an interesting point that you bring about about today because who knows if we're ever going to get another Goldilocks period again. Unfortunately, the money people know what works. And at the moment, it's intellectual properties, superheroes, nostalgic sci-fi legacy sequels. I've probably gone on this rant every episode I've done (laughs) where, you know, these lower and middle budget films, whether they're comedies, musicals, or in these days, horror slasher films. It's important that they exist, and it's important they keep pushing the the envelope, even envelopes that we didn't think needed to be pushed yet, just so we can get some more creativity sparked and see newer ideas like this at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going into the 70s and even in the 80s, and the movie, the producers didn't break box office records. It barely broke even. Yeah. And... It, you you had to have a sense of bravery of Mel Brooks to make a movie like this. And you had to have a clear message and you had to know exactly what you wanted to accomplish. And not many people had that or wanted to take the chance on that. And it's a sign of bravery of creation uh, from Mel Brooks. But we now get in a time now where we have studio meddling. We have uh, people making multiple investments. You have five to six studio productions in one film and you have to have everybody on board to do that. And it's a shame that we don't have more of that unless you go to the independent aspect of filmmaking. And I really hope that we see a lot more chances and a lot more um, risk-taking when it comes to comedy like this. And comedy is the way we have dialogue, and it's the thanks of creators like Mel Brooks that opens up that dialogue. You know, so like a lot of people have been saying right now, like the the middle-budget comedy or the romantic comedy on the big screen that formula is kind of dead intellectual properties killed it but we've seen it flourish on streaming we've seen Mm -hmm. it flourish in limited series we've seen it flourish on a multitude of streaming apps that these different studios have out these days i guess my question is are we okay with that because i always find myself on the fence where it's like i do think that sometimes long-form media is the way to go. You can tell a story more appropriately, get your message across. You don't have to trim jokes that could have worked but got trimmed because you have to make this 90-minute runtime for a theatrical release. I have not committed to an opinion on that yet. I'm still on the fence of like, are we okay with letting this kind of film go theatrically? And, and let it live yeah. and flourish on, on streaming. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, and, you know, I'm doing a special for the movie wire this uh, summer on the movie-going experience, and I've been back and forth on that as well. Um, and here's the reason I think theaters um, and film has been so protected by censorship for the most part. It, it could be a lot worse is because you have to physically pay to get into a theater. You have to look at the rating. You have to be sometimes carded at the box office. There's protocols on that. But what ruins that is going to be, again, studios on what they're going to invest their money. Streaming has opened up an opportunity, but it is a very dangerous thing for theaters and going and having that experience on a big screen. It does open up a lot for creators to give their opinion, but it does open up a lot more censorship it takes a lot more access for kids to see stuff they shouldn't do and for people to place blame on the streaming service Mm -hmm. so it's a double-edged sword um i think to protect the 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 filmmakers we need to have less we need to have more independent film in theaters in my opinion a hundred percent a hundred percent and that's streaming is great don't get me wrong we all do it but it's, and my fear with streaming is that it is going to open up a can of worms when it comes to censorship eventually. And I also think it's created a bubble for theaters, especially after this pandemic where theaters were struggling, theaters f- collapsed, they're being bought by industrial complexes now instead of independent owners. 
And I see a bubble of, I mean, and I think Maverick Top Gun is the perfect example of this. You've got this nostalgic wave, this legacy sequel that just broke a billion dollars, and it has put this like encouragement back into the faith of the theater system. Theaters have been saved. People are going to go to movies again. But that was a, a legacy sequel, an intellectual property. There will be a moment where the, where the bubble bursts. And these Absolutely. films aren't going to bring people to the theaters anymore. And a yeah. smart I mean, filmmaker will be ready to put something in those screens when that happens. Yeah, I totally agree. And if we go back a couple of years prior to pandemic, I mean, there was two, three movies launching every week. Of course, we've gone down drastically. We're lucky to get one. Yeah. And, and that's what makes my show. I added some streaming stuff to my show because the pickings are slim when it comes to what you experience at the theater. And I wanted to keep it to about 30 minutes. And I wanted to have that opportunity to have people get a dialogue started on multiple movies, whatever you may see, but it is a dying breed um, that we're seeing in the theaters right now. And the nostalgic thing is huge right now. And you're right. It's going to fizzle out. We're seeing like Jurassic world come out, uh, top gun, star Wars, um, Jurassic World, in my opinion, started that nostalgic feeling when it first came out um, and started that ball rolling. Mm -hmm. um, but we're going to be seeing a lot more remakes and a lot more uh, studio meddling in those remakes. And it's just not going to end well. And people are going to get exhausted from it. And that's where we're going to see a lot of people bounce back to streaming, unfortunately. And, you know, I'm a real advocate for physical media as well. Anyone who's been a guest on my show sees like my stupid shells behind me. But like, there's been a movement. I have my finger on the pulse of this physical media movement because what we do see is we do see films that were so comfortable with being on streaming all of a sudden disappear. And you can't find them anywhere because someone's locked the rights in. But guess what? I've still got that Blu-ray. I've still got that DVD. And then you've got these boutique labels who are really paying respect to that original material that most people just thought was garbage. You know, cutting room floor sequences, director commentaries, outtakes, but not only that, films that people used to laugh at as like, you know, B-movies or midnight classics. And now there's a market for that. So I'd say that the excitement and enthusiasm for film and for cinema still exists. It's just being channeled in different ways. And, you know, maybe that is the natural progression of how this works. But I do want theaters to survive, but I don't want them to survive with what they've been trying to force us to, to watch. Yeah. And that's well said. I mean, even if we look at the producers, I mean, it is so limited on where you can find it on streaming. I mean, I, I have a co physical copy. I have multiple physical copies of the producers, but, and I don't have it on streaming, but I looked the other night and it's available to rent and you can find it on streaming, but it's, very limited when it comes to own it. So yep. I'm grateful that I have the physical media. And to your point, absolutely, it's getting harder and harder to find a lot of some of those comedies or some of those great stories out there to actually find. I mean, if you look back to some independent movies from the 80s, it's there's some great 80 movies that haven't been recognized and you just can't really find them anymore. And the perfect example, I don't know if you've seen this one, but uh, Peter Jackson in his early years, he, uh, one of my first obscure movies that I saw that I got from Scarecrow uh, video was meet the feebles. I've got it on DVD and VHS. <laughs> oh, I knew you would. I knew you would. And it's, the movie is risque, but it is one of those independent things that you can't really find anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that people, it's going to be everybody's cup of tea because it's a very, uh, unique taste in movies. Um, but it's just an example of how hard it is to find some decently good stories or some creative stories out there. And you're absolutely right. hundred percent. So, you know, the producers, I, I would say this is a required viewing by anyone who calls them a fan of cinema. I would say that this is required viewing for anyone who says they're a fan of comedy, because this is, in my opinion, probably one of the top five quintessential comedies ever put on film totally agree and this one is my all-time favorite comedy there's no argument about it it's uh, hard to compete especially with mel brooks on yeah. which which film is your favorite but 
this one is so unique and simple that it takes my top one. Well, thank you so much for jumping on this one. You were the perfect guest to talk about this film. So what do you got coming up with uh, the movie wire and just in time? Well, uh, the movie wire this week, we'll be reviewing the new Beavis and Butthead on available on streaming. Still haven't watched it. And <laughs> yet yeah, you better listen. <laughs> and uh, also Elvis and a couple other goodies that we have. And this summer on the movie wire, again, I have a special project that I'm probably going to reach out to you for oh, nice. on the theater experience. That sounds amazing. And like everyone should already know, I've got links to both of Justin's podcasts on thecultworthy.com, which is my website under the Cultworthy Partners page. So if you want to listen to his uh, to shows, check it out there or wherever podcasts are, are streaming for sure. And like I always say, follow me on Instagram, Letterboxd, Twitter, and on thecultworthy.com where I have weekly reviews, all the updated podcasts, and any news about my cult-worthy partners on the Cult-Worthy Partners page. Justin, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And yeah, we got to do this again. And absolutely, hopefully on the other show too, because we got to talk about some obscure films next. Absolutely, anytime. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Good night, everybody.